Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Did you know that U.S. taxpayer dollars are going to the infamous Wuhan Institute of Virology, the very one that may have been responsible for sparking this horrible pandemic? In fact, just a few days ago, U.S. Representative Matt Gates tweeted the following. For years, the U.S. government has been funding cruel animal experiments at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which may have contributed to the global spread of COVID-19 and research at other labs in China with virtually no U.S. oversight. During a press conference on April 17th, that's just a few days ago, President Trump noted a large 2015 grant under the Obama administration had been given to the Chinese lab and that Trump's team is looking into whether any further grants are upcoming. With each passing day, we're learning more and more about the dishonesty demonstrated by the Chinese communist government. So we need to find out what's going on here. The group White Coat Waste seeks to stop taxpayer-funded experiments on dogs, monkeys, cats, and other animals by cutting federal spending that hurts animals and Americans. From White Coat Waste, I'm very pleased to welcome Justin Goodman, Vice President of Advocacy and Public Policy. Welcome to the program, Justin. Thanks, Doc. It's a pleasure to be here. Justin, how is it that United States tax dollars can end up funding or supporting research on animals in China or anywhere in the world for that matter. And for China specifically during this time of pandemic, it's really important to know what's going on here. So would you please lay it all out for us? Absolutely. Uh, You know, a lot of people don't realize that the U.S. government is the single largest funder of animal testing in the entire world. It's not cosmetics companies, it's not pharmaceutical companies, it's the U.S. government. Us taxpayers are being forced to foot the bill for this waste and abuse to the tune of about $20 billion a year. And what we've discovered recently is that not only is that funding going to U.S. institutions like government laboratories, universities, and colleges, um, but tens of millions of dollars a year are shipped by the NIH to foreign countries for animal testing, where there, as you mentioned earlier, there's very little oversight and accountability. And uh, for the last few months, we've been slowly exposing some of the international ties to NIH's animal testing money. Uh, and about a week ago, uh, we released our newest expose showing that the U.S. National Institutes of Health, so taxpayers, for years have been sending money to the Wuhan Institute of Virology specifically for experiments on coronavirus-infected bats and other animals. Incredible. How exactly does this work? Where does the money come from specifically? So this is National Institutes of Health funding. So this is tax dollars that we all pay to the federal government on April 15th every year, or I guess this year it'll be July 15th. Those tax dollars go into a big pool of money that Congress then distributes to different agencies. And unfortunately, for way too long, the NIH has essentially gotten a blank check and wasted about 50% of its money every year. So the NIH has a budget of about $40 billion right now. And half of that goes to animal testing. Hmm. Uh, So we've recently exposed horrible stuff in the U.S., uh, animals, uh, monkeys at the NIH's own labs in Maryland um, being given given brain damage and intentionally scared with snakes and spiders. Really horrible stuff. But 
it gets even worse because now we have this situation where there's a global pandemic that originated, it appears to have originated in Wuhan, China. And what we learned right after our expose, so again, we released that taxpayer funding was going to this Wuhan laboratory specifically for coronavirus experiments. What these people were doing with tax money is going to the caves where COVID-19 is believed to have originated. And this was a few years back before it was a pandemic. They were going into those caves they were capturing coronavirus infected bats. They were handling them, taking samples. They were killing some of them. And then those people who were exposed to those coronavirus infected bats were going back into a laboratory and doing experiments, not only on those animals and their tissues, but also injecting other animals with coronaviruses to see what happened. Uh, and now we learn a couple days after our expose came out, a Washington Post story ran saying that in 2018, the U.S. State Department had warned that these exact experiments, these coronavirus experiments on bats, could cause a global pandemic because the lab had such poor oversight and was being sloppy. So for years, we've been sending money to this place, but no accountability about how it's being spent. And then we find out that government or officials went there and were horrified about what they saw and that it could cause a global pandemic. And here we find ourselves exactly in that situation. So it remains to be seen whether or not you know, this did the, the coronavirus did come out of this particular lab. But the fact is, is that we have been funding very dangerous, risky research in a country where we really have no oversight about it. what's going on with that money, how the research is being done and if the proper precautions are being taken. So, Justin, regarding the origins of the pandemic, what's your best guess as to how it began? Well, you know, like everyone else, I'm following the science, and it appears that this is a naturally occurring virus. It did emerge in nature. So there are some theories out there, kind of fringe theories, that this was bioengineered. I don't think that's the case. I do think that this is a naturally occurring virus, but I also think it's not beyond the pale that this virus was captured out in the wild, brought into a laboratory, and there is a chance that someone in the lab got infected and then spread it that way. Um, So I don't think we know yet, but I don't think that can be discounted. And the fact is, is no matter what happened, I think American taxpayers not only are shocked to learn that they're funding animal testing in in China, but that they're specifically funding this very dangerous research that we uh, really have no control over. Absolutely. Absolutely. money, you know, halfway around the world uh, and hoping nothing bad comes of it. I don't think that's a risk anyone is willing to take uh, either now or in, in the future. You know, we can't even adequately manage what researchers do in our own country. And I'll just reference a Harvard professor, Dr. Charles Lieber, who was arrested for his undisclosed ties to China. How could it possibly be a smart idea to fund research in other countries? Yeah, and you know, in terms of the animal welfare component of all of this, there's virtually no protections for animals in laboratories in China. There's no laws preventing cruelty to animals in labs in China. And there have been situations, including earlier this year, where a, an animal experimenter in China was jailed for selling experimental animals to wet markets. So they're taking animals who have been abused and infected in laboratories and then selling them to markets that will in turn put those same animals into the food supply. So again, there is just so much crazy stuff going on that we do not have any authority over. And I don't think taxpayers want to be funding cruel animal testing and dangerous animal testing in Wuhan. 
and we certainly do not want to be funding the wet markets. And actually, beyond the animal testing, there's another tie to the wet markets because a couple years ago, we exposed that American experimenters from the U.S. Department of Agriculture were flying to China's wet markets, buying cats and dogs from these wet markets, having them slaughtered with our tax money, and then flying them their pieces, the pieces of the animals, back to the United States and feeding dog and cat meat to kittens in a government lab. Wow. Wow. And that was happening for over a decade at taxpayer expense. Most people at the USDA didn't know that was going on. Uh, Certainly Congress didn't know that was going on. The media didn't know that was going on. But again, you have American experimenters flying over there, bringing back potentially infected, dangerous cat and dog meat on a plane in their carry-on luggage. They wrote about this in their carry-on luggage. They brought that stuff back, brought it into labs where they could also potentially be exposing other government employees, uh, other animals, uh, maybe their families when they get home to whoever the hell knows what you know kind of viruses are, are lurking in these wet markets that we know have caused pandemics before. Um, so it's just outrageous that we would have this type of relationship with these despicable institutions overseas. Um, we want to make sure that the U.S. government isn't culpable uh, for this type of bad behavior and certainly isn't supporting it with American tax dollars. And it is completely unnecessary for us to be sending U.S. tax dollars over to China, one of the richest countries in the world, uh, plenty of resources of their own. Uh, As you noted, can't be trusted to tell the truth about pandemics, have repeatedly lied about COVID, are muzzling experimenters and researchers so they can't talk about where the disease came from, have been responsible for pandemics before and lied about it. Uh, Again, this is just not something that taxpayers should be uh, subsidizing in any way. Justin, why don't you sum up for us what White Coat Waste did to end this taxpayer abuse, which is a perfect example of the great work you guys do, which is to stop taxpayer-funded experiments on animals. So last week, we released an investigation showing that taxpayer money was going to fund the Wuhan Institute of Virology that is believed to be a potential source of the COVID virus that causes global epidemic. And just days later, Uh, This past Friday night, President Trump was on national TV and cited our investigation, saying that he was going to take action to end the funding immediately. And now we're working with members of Congress to ensure not only does no more NIH money go to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, but no tax dollars from any agency, including from the upcoming stimulus packages, are directed to this laboratory. People can visit our website at whitecoatwaste.org, not only to read more, but to get active and contact their members of Congress and let them know that they support this effort. Whitecoatwaste.org. Justin Goodman, thank you very much. Thank you, Doctor. Appreciate it. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Don't go away. More with the show right after the break. Your animals say fun facts for the day are about koalas. When early European settlers first encountered koalas in Australia, they thought the tree-climbing animals were bears or monkeys. Even today, people still incorrectly refer to koalas as koala bears. In fact, koalas, like kangaroos, are actually marsupials, which are also known as pouched mammals because the adult females have a marsupium, or pouch, where their young stay until fully developed. Koalas are only found in Australia, and they are one of that country's iconic symbols. Koalas have special physical 
physical characteristics that complement their tree-dwelling lifestyle, including their two opposable digits to grip branches and to pick the tasty eucalyptus leaves, their main form of nourishment. And these are your Animals Today fun facts for the day. Welcome back. Worldwide attention is focused on the Wuhan China live animal market, a wet market, and its role in the current viral pandemic. This, uh, thankfully, if you can say, has led to more attention back here in the United States to our own live animal markets. There are growing calls to eliminate them here, which is good. I am pleased to welcome Judy Mancuso. She is founder, CEO, and president of Social Compassion in Legislation, SCIL. They are a nonprofit dedicated to animal welfare rights and protection. Welcome, Judy. Thanks for having me very much. So how has this pandemic brought attention to the U.S. live animal food markets? What we're learning is most people did not know they exist in the United States. In the beginning, you know, there was mention that this came from a live market in Wuhan, China. Bats, pangolins, civic cats, the SARS, I guess, came from civic cats and bats. So there's this whole history of these zoonotic diseases coming from this wildlife trade at these live markets. And it's not just China. There's Vietnam, Cambodia, across Asia. Um, the wildlife trade is rampant and selling everything imaginable at these markets is available as well. With that attention, finally the attention grew to that as the source and getting to the source of the problem. We wanted to shine the light on, well, we have these here at home and we need to do something about them right here at home if we're going to ask the rest of the world to follow and to shut these down. We need to do the same. So where are they at home and what is found at them? In California, the definition, because there is one, of a live market is found in Penal Code 597.3, and it includes amphibians, reptiles, and birds that are non-poultry. The estimate from 2014, when there was an estimate, was over 2 million bullfrogs sold in California. And these are plucked from the wild. They are brought in. Um, they are farmed. Uh, the turtles, these are endangered or vulnerable species, the various types of turtles and frogs. So um, it's a problem right here. Uh, now, in New York, however, um, they have a different set of animals. Well, they don't even have a definition of a live market, first of all, and it's kind of a free-for-all. And it is lambs and chickens and turtles and frogs. And, you know, here we have snakes. Uh, they have snakes. So it just goes on and on. And, yes, they are slaughtered right there yeah. and sold to the public. So they are alive. They're sold to people for consumption, human consumption, and they are slaughtered on site. And is that mostly New York City? 
Uh, well, there's 81 that's in the Manhattan area, but the uh, list that I saw does go across the state. And this is a state bill and same for California. Yeah. Okay. So Skill is now working with legislators in both states, California, New York, to develop and introduce legislation to address these markets. Can you please uh, tell us what you're trying to do in each state? In California, we already had a bill that was um, that was going. It's SB 1175, and SB 1175 has to do with um, protecting endangered species. So we asked our author if we could add this piece once. Well, COVID-19, our coronavirus, uh, as we knew it then, was just starting up like in the February time frame. And I mentioned to Senator Stern, can we include live markets in our bill? And then by March, you know, we're all staying at home and people are dying um, at a rapid pace. And it, the, the steam really picked up. Yeah. So he had his office do research into existing policy. We helped doing the research as well and came down to the only thing we can do in California is eliminate this penal code. And then I reached out because uh, we have so much data on New York uh, and their markets that I reached out to an assemblywoman that I've worked with in the past and asked her if she would be interested in carrying a bill there. While they're doing that, I'm building a coalition of support yeah. and talking to the press. And both of those things are taking all of my time 24-7 because we are going to need you know, every everybody we can get behind us to get this done. Okay, final question here. Do you get the feeling that the uh, individual who's not really tuned into these issues is uh, realizing about these markets and uh, is going to uh, be open to getting them closed down? Yes. I mean, we, not to get political here, but the appeal to closing these down and understanding the public health concerns, the crisis that is at hand, the largest in our lifetime, uh, is uh, on, on both sides of the aisle. You know, Republicans and Democrats sent a letter to the World Health. 66 uh, senators and Congress people sent a letter to the World Health Organizations asking to shut down live markets. Uh, the other day, our bills hit Fox News, Hannity, um, and um, they were even talking about the need. So it's appealing, it seems, to the left, very progressive, moderate, and even to the right and very far right. So, I mean, it looks very promising that we're going to get it done. But we will get major pushback from the people, obviously, who are bringing those animals to market that will want to continue to and are making money 
off of it. As usual. Judy Mancuso, founder and CEO and president of Skills Social Compassion in Legislation. Uh, just remind us of the website so people can uh, read all your stuff. It is Social Compassion in legislation.org. And we have a spot on the site that says how to help. That's where you can go in and fill out a support letter and get on our mailing list so that you keep updated on our, you know, when it's time to do the next action alert or new bills. So yes, thank you for um, letting me give my site a plug. I appreciate that. You bet. Thank you very much for coming on today. More with animals today, right after this break. Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. There's been a lot of talk about pangolins and bats and their role in the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, Lori and I want to get the latest on the origins of this virus and how live animal markets fueled this worldwide crisis. So I am pleased now to welcome Adam Payman. He is manager for programs and operations for the Wildlife Department at Humane Society International. Welcome, Adam. Thanks very much. Okay, so as I just mentioned, a lot of people are talking about pangolins and bats. We've seen those cute pangolins, and we've seen pictures of bats and bat soup, and uh, a lot of talk about where this virus came from. Also, speculation about whether these virus labs had anything to do with the spawning of this uh, monster. So I would like you, please, to start addressing some of these questions for our listeners from your perspective in the uh, animal uh, welfare and wildlife universe, please. Yeah, so I guess one logical place to start would be with bats. So, um, you know, as bats are um, are thought to have basically co-evolved with coronaviruses for millennia, uh, and they are reservoirs for such viruses, of which there are several kinds. Um, and uh, bats, the, the reason they 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 act as reservoirs for these viruses is because they're widely distributed. Uh, they live for many, many years or long lived a group of species. Uh, some of them live to be 40 years uh, old in the wild. Uh, they of course roost communally. And so that, uh, that can uh, help boost the spread of such viruses. Um, they also live on all continents except Antarctica. They are very wide-ranging um, across the globe. And actually, bats are asymptomatic when they carry these, these viruses, meaning that they can spread them uh, without suffering any morbidity um, or death. Now, both SARS and MERS, uh, which are other coronaviruses, uh, were transmitted from bats to intermediate host species, probably through uh, defecation in areas where they were roosting, and then that uh, fecal matter came in contact with something that another species ate, for example, or maybe they were in trade and were in close contact with other species in in a marketplace, that kind of thing, uh, where, again, obviously, the conditions are usually uh, not very hygienic, and there's a lot of spread of fecal matter, uh, blood, etc. 
Yeah, so the the bats are known to be reservoirs for such viruses, um, including COVID-19. And so um, it's it's thought that bats are the source of this virus. And it's it's kind of unfortunate uh, because we know that bats were were the source of SARS and MERS. And uh, basically, so the world has had chances to learn the lesson that uh, trade in wildlife and also uh, basically uh, habitat destruction that pushes uh, communities closer and closer to the to the native habitat of these species and thus forces interaction. Obviously, you know, if, if in the case of MERS, that was a, a, a camel that was the intermediate host. And so obviously a species that humans interact with very closely in some areas of the world. And so um, uh, we had a chance to learn from these lessons that, uh, you know, trade in wildlife and, and pushing, you know, encroaching on wildlife habitat can cause such zoonotic disease transmission. But no long-term action was taken. Uh, researchers in 2007 called the this situation and, and the wildlife trade that was involved a ticking time bomb uh, because, you know, it was just a matter of time that uh, another pandemic uh, would, would, uh, would occur. Describe these uh, live animal markets. What's it like uh, there? We've all seen a picture or two. And um, how important do you think their existence is to uh, this current crisis? Wildlife trade uh, in general is certainly a big cause of this whole situation. Uh, and such markets are known uh, to, to, to sell many different species, as I said before. So um, species that are caught in the wild, um, some might be bred in captivity, wild animals may be bred in captivity. And then what you're doing is you're putting all of these different species together. Uh, oftentimes they're sold live or they're butchered on site. And so uh, you're really sort of, you know, offering these diseases the best possible uh, environment for for spread. Uh, and so uh, it's clear that, you know, especially when you're talking about mammals, wild mammals and, and birds, which are potential carriers of coronaviruses, uh, you're, you're really asking for it. And this goes back to this, this ticking time bomb. If people continue to, to uh, trade in wild uh, mammals and birds, then it's just a matter of time before this whole thing will happen once again. It happened in 2002 with SARS. It happened about 10 years later with MERS. And here we are about 10 years after that. And so I think that it's, it's pretty clear what, uh, what needs to happen. Many people are just learning about pangolins for the first time. Not our listeners. We've uh, talked about them before how they are the most highly trafficked animal illegally around the world. And they've been in the news a lot, too, related to this. So what do you think their role of pangolins has been? Right. The finding the animal that that was the intermediate host may happen. Obviously, everyone is very interested to find out. But without, you know, genetic material from some of the very first human cases or from animals with very similar viruses, including animals that may have been present at the Wuhan seafood market, um, it's, it's very difficult. But some researchers have found that uh, pangolins do carry uh, at least one kind of coronavirus that's similar 
to COVID-19. Um, other researchers do disagree. I mean, this is the process of science, obviously. But uh, pangolins uh, are, of course, uh, they, they are carriers of, of this other type of coronavirus. And uh, this is, it's relatively rare that they would pose a threat to humans by zoonotic disease transmission. But uh, pangolins are, of course, the most trafficked mammal in the world. And uh, yeah, we've actually seen a major shift from trafficking in Asian to African species. Um, but I think one of, the, one of the main takeaways from all this is that uh, it's important not to basically point fingers uh, at, at individual species, because whether it be pangolins, um, which are, of course, uh, m almost all of the species are, hi are highly endangered, trafficking is still on the rise, actually, we're seeing. And uh, in addition to, to pangolins that are really in need of our help, rather than, you know, being persecuted as uh, maybe the, the carriers of disease, Bats also uh, play many critical roles for the ecosystem. And once people heard that, oh, this came from a bat, then you see this, this sort of visceral reaction, right? People want to, you know, exterminate all the bats, you know, which is, of course, there, there are many, many species of bats. Most of them had nothing to do with this, and uh, they, have, they uh, play critical roles uh, in the ecosystem as biological pest controllers. Uh, they serve to pollinate uh, seeds, et cetera. And so we want to make sure that, um, that people don't jump to thinking that, oh, we should kill all the bats or all the pangolins, um, which is the risk of, you know, basically jumping the gun and, uh, and blaming the pangolin uh, maybe as a, uh, as a possible intermediate host. I mean, another thing that we've that that we see um, in, in various uh, in the research of various uh, scientists is that um, and ecologists, obviously, is that uh, you know, and I, as I mentioned previously, when you when you continue to to um, encroach on wild animals' habitats, right, then uh, you're basically coming in contact with species. That you that have had little, if any, contact with man, and uh, you're not only exposing these species to unprecedented levels of exploitation for trade and consumption, but you're also exposing mankind to novel zoonotic diseases such as COVID-19. And there are more diseases out there that uh, probably have, have never been researched, or, or you know, I guess I could say, thankfully, have never been caught. Uh, by a person or become this, you know, global pandemic. But such viruses can be basically held, can be, uh, uh, you know, held by uh, a wild animal. And that animal can be asymptomatic, like is the case with the coronaviruses in bats. And so it's, it's basically what, what we can say is a lot of this, if not all of it, is our fault for our actions whether it be for you know through the trade in, in wild uh, mammals and birds or or the the habitat uh, destruction, we've been speaking with Adam Payman from Humane Society International. Adam, in the last couple of seconds, uh, what ought to change to uh, prevent this from happening again, or is this just inevitable in our complicated world? 
So what I'd like to stress is that uh, the trade in wild animals, and I keep hitting on wild mammals and birds because in during you know these are the potential carriers of coronaviruses. Um, but the trade in wild animals, even when perfectly legal, you know, just to, to make the distinction that it's not just trafficking that's the problem here. Um, so the trade in wild animals, even when it's legal trade, can be detrimental to wild animals, wild uh, animal species, because they can lead to over-exploitation and actually push these species to the brink of extinction. There was a report uh, last year by the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. I know it's a mouthful, but uh, basically they warned that one million species globally now face extinction, and they highlighted exploitation of wildlife as one of the main causes for these declines. Now, the report calls for transformative change to mitigate this unprecedented threat level. And habitat destruction, of course, comes into this as well, right, as it creates the perfect conditions for zoonotic disease transmission. So basically the trend of over-exploitation of wild animals will, you know, will continue to encroach further and further on the native ranges. And then we're, you know, again, we're exposing ourselves to, uh, to these novel zoonotic diseases, and when we trade these animals, we bring them from their, nat their native environment into these, uh, whether it be a, a marketplace like the Wuhan seafood market or, or just uh, ship, it, uh, ship a pet, for example, from, uh, from one country to another. They can carry diseases. And so uh, basically what we, what we need to do is the priority needs to be uh, ending the trade and consumption of wild mammals and birds, and that will uh, that will address this problem. Adam Payman with Humane Society International. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. More with animals today after this break. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner. You're listening to Animals Today. You know, Animals Today is a project of advancing the interest of animals. Advancing the interest of animals is a nonprofit animal welfare organization. We're based here in Palm Springs, California. And if you like what we're doing, please consider donating a little bit to Advancing the Interests of Animals to support the continued production of the show. The website's aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Peter, mm. we've never talked about butterflies no, on animals so. today. Mm. So we're going to discuss some really cool facts about the butterfly and incorporate a quiz into these fascinating butterfly facts. <laughs> okay, so you ready? I'm ready. Butterflies, as you know, are these beautiful, brightly colored flying insects with two pairs of large wings that vary in color and pattern depending on the species. Peter, true or false? The wings are transparent. That is false. Wrong. <laughs> the wings are actually clear. The colors and patterns we see are made by the reflection of the tiny scales covering them. Doesn't make sense, but okay. Just because it doesn't make sense to you doesn't mean it's false. I know. True or false, butterflies range in size from a tiny one-eighth of an inch to a huge almost 12 inches. I'm going to say that's true. It is true. Mm. And incredible. Yep. Imagine a 12-inch Right, but landing on your shoulder. Oh, my God. Oh, don't. Hi. <laughs> With the exception of a few specific species, an adult butterfly has a very short life, just three to four weeks. Peter, true or false, butterflies can fly in all temperatures. In all temperatures? 
I'm going to say that's false. It is false. Butterflies need an ideal body temperature of about 85 degrees Fahrenheit to fly. Since they're cold-blooded animals, they can't regulate their own body temperature. The surrounding air temperature has a big impact on their ability to function. Mm -hmm. So if the air temperature falls below 55 degrees Fahrenheit, butterflies are rendered immobile, unable to flee from predators or feed. When air temperatures range between 82 degrees and 100 degrees, butterflies can fly with ease. Mm. True or false, adult butterflies feed primarily on other insects. I'm going to say that's true. That's false. Uh, Adult butterflies can only feed on liquids, usually nectar. Oh, yeah. Their mouth parts are modified to enable them to drink, but they can't chew solids. Butterflies have a long tube-like tongue called a proboscis that allows them to soak up their food. One of its first jobs as an adult butterfly is to assemble its mouth parts. You may see a newly emerged butterfly curling and uncurling the proboscis over and over, testing it out. Oh, that's neat. Isn't that cool? Yeah. True or false? Butterflies taste with this tube-like tongue, the proboscis. Mmm, that sounds like false to me. It is false. Ah. Butterflies taste with their feet. Oh, wow. Butterflies have taste receptors on their feet. A female butterfly lands on different plants drumming the leaves with her feet until the plant releases its juices. Spines on the back of her legs have chemoreceptors that detect the right match of plant chemicals. When she identifies the right plant, she lays her eggs. So after mating, the female butterfly lays her eggs on a caterpillar food or, quote, host plant. Mm -hmm. The eggs can hatch when the conditions are just right, and caterpillars can start eating their host plant right away. Peter, the process by which a caterpillar transforms into a butterfly is called Mm. what? Metamorphosis. Yeah, you remember your biology. Metamorphosis is completed in about 10 to 15 days, depending on the species. A group of butterflies is sometimes called what? A herd, a flutter, Mm. a pack, or a litter? Oh, I... Total guess flutter. It's flutter. Yeah. The litter of butterflies. That would be <laughs> weird. I had to think of some. <laughs> Peter, you and I being ophthalmologists, we know that a normal human eye has one natural lens in it, right? Yep. Butterflies' eyes are made of how many lenses? Oh, like a compound lens, maybe. I'm going to say yeah. a thousand lenses. One, mm-hmm. 10, 160, or 6,000? Oh, 6,000. It is 6,000 lenses. That is so cool. Yeah, 6,000 lenses and can see ultraviolet light. There are about 17,500 species of butterflies spread throughout almost the entire world. Butterflies are found on every continent. Except. Except. Except Antarctica? Yes. Okay. Well, it's cold there. They can't. Very good. Wouldn't wouldn't work out. Okay. You're a pretty smart guy. Okay. Yes. So many species migrate to avoid adverse conditions like the cold, right? Most migrate relatively short distances, but monarchs and several other species migrate thousands of miles. With respect to the monarch butterfly, they are the only insect that migrates an average of 2,500 miles to find a warmer climate. Well, that's really fascinating. You don't think of the movement of a butterfly as being so efficient that it can get you very far. It's interesting. Butterfly wings move in a figure eight motion. Butterflies flap all its wings at the same time at about five beats per second. So the defense mechanisms of the butterfly, well, there are a few ways they defend themselves from predators. One method is 
disguise or called cryptic coloration, where the butterfly has the ability to look like a leaf or blend into the bark of a tree to hide from predators. Mm -hmm. Another method is chemical defense, where the butterfly has evolved to have toxic chemicals in its body. These species of butterflies are often brightly colored, and predators have learned over time to associate their bright color with the bad taste of the chemicals. Well, the greatest threats to butterflies are habitat change and loss due to residential, commercial, and agricultural development. Mm -hmm. And there you go, Peter. March 14th, learn about Butterflies Day. Okay, I learned about butterflies. I needed that. Thank you. Okay, what do you got there? Well, it's sort of uh, semi-saliva related. (laughs) It's a nice uh, story. In Santa Monica, a firefighter recently saved a dog using so-called mouth-to-snout resuscitation. This, uh, this uh, Bichon mixed dog, 10 years old, was uh, found unresponsive by firefighter Andrew Klein during an apartment fire in Santa Monica. The dog was not breathing and did not have a pulse, according to the fire captain. The firefighter said, I just grabbed him. He knew he was unresponsive and decided he just need to bring him back. He used mouth to snout CPR and they also gave supplemental oxygen it took 20 minutes for the dog to begin breathing on his own again and the dog ended up fine that's so great it was really it's a great story and yes it's a great story there are some details that are not included here for instance whether chest compressions were given because earlier in the story they do say he did not have a pulse so usually you'd want to lay the dog on the side and give chest compressions and also do the breathing and i also read that in mouth to snout if the dog is a larger dog then you close the mouth and you just breathe through the nose and in a smaller dog you just put your mouth over the nose and the dog's mouth and breathe for them. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. And similar to human resuscitation, first thing you need to do is what? You need to, you know, check the pulse, check the respirations, and then see if the airway is clear. And then if you think there's an obstruction, you do a doggy Heimlich by coming behind the dog and lifting the dog up and just, you know, doing a doggy Heimlich. Yeah. You know, pet owners really should refine their CPR for their animals, shouldn't they? They give courses on this. Yeah. And I bet you just going online, you can get a good feeling of what's going on here. Right. So thanks to uh, Andrew Klein saving that dog. The dog guardian said, I am just so grateful. Well, thanks so much for bringing that subject up, Peter. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet. The animals.